Coming up this hour, we're going to spend the entire hour talking about what happened at the Capitol yesterday, and we're joined by political scientist David Koizis. You're listening to The Common Board. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkin, along with Brian Fromm. And uh, we're actually going to commit this entire first hour to talk about what happened yesterday. I, I think most of us at this point are pretty familiar. You've probably read a number of perspectives. You've maybe hopped on Twitter or Facebook or read a blog or two, listened to a podcast or two. And I thought, yeah, let's not just spend a segment or two doing kind of a quick flyover, but instead... Let's maybe take a little bit of a deeper dive. Uh, coming up after this, by the way, political scientist David Coises is going to join us for two segments, and he is brilliant. He wrote the book Political Visions and Illusions. If you've not read it, can't recommend it enough. But he's he's going to kind of help us weigh into the weeds a little bit because, uh, like Brian and I often say, we're a little bit over our skis on some of this. So we're going to reference some other works that people have written in the last 24 hours to kind of help us navigate this. And I have three in this first segment, so kind of, <laughs> par for the course, I guess, in our first segment. I'm going to let you choose which one you want to go after first. Yeah, I want to start with friend of the show, Ed Stetzer. Uh, and he wrote this uh, yesterday, more than the Capitol has been breached. Uh, more than the Capitol has been breached. Uh, and it says this, this season of political sowing has brought the harvest we see at the Capitol today. So he wrote this yesterday, obviously. Parents teach their children that actions have consequences. Unfortunately, we have plenty of examples these days of people who never seem to learn this lesson. And most disturbingly, when we when these examples are those entrusted with power, the consequences are far reaching. He goes on to say this day will be remembered for generations, for years to come, that President Trump's ongoing claims of massive fraud and his unwillingness to concede the election have had consequences and that President Trump told us that it would. And then later on at the bottom, uh, Stetzer says this. He says there's an American reckoning coming. But there's also an evangelical reckoning to be had. For now, we know three things. Character matters, elections have consequences, and so do conspiracy, th conspiracy theories. So Ed coming, coming out there swinging right now, saying that this is a reckoning, not just for America, but also for evangelicalism. I don't know, Ian, how if you saw some of the pictures of like uh, in the midst of the protest, the sign like over someone's shoulder that says Jesus saves or it says like, uh, you know, it's got verses. And I think some people think that's a good thing. But, man, that, that kind of intertwining was just so disturbing to see. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think Ed talking about here there being a reckoning uh, that has been coming. But then with kind of what happened yesterday, it's, it's at our it's at our doorstep right now. Well, t talk to me a little bit more about why this uh, intertwining is so dangerous, because I think that for me at least, and I want to be careful because I know that not everyone who listens to our show would necessarily consider themselves an evangelical or a Christ follower or a Jesus person at all, which is kind of why I wanted to commit the first hour to it to try to as clearly and explicitly as we possibly can say um, that kind of merging, right. Of, of putting Jesus saves on a flag for actions like that is not Christianity. And I hope that's not too sharp a point. Maybe it's not sharp enough. I just think there's there's been so much dancing around a lot of these topics as of late. And I know that, you know, we have brothers and sisters and friends and family and coworkers and congregants on on every side of theological debate, political debate, social debate. I feel like my hope, maybe I'm maybe I'm naive, is that we could at least unify around this one thing and say what that was doesn't look like Jesus, like doesn't yeah. 
doesn't represent the Christianity that you and I, I know, want want to be mm-hmm. a part of perpetuating and leading and pastoring and preaching. And uh, that's that's a big part of what I guess grieves me is because that doesn't seem to be the case right now. If you hop on Twitter, yeah. you hop on Facebook. I don't know why I'm surprised by that. There, there's, again, <laughs> a lot of hurt, um, a lot of dissension, a lot of division. And that's part of what I, I guess has my my brain swimming right now. So yeah, speak, speak a little bit to why you think sort of this, I think the word you used was intertwining is, is not just like unfortunate, but a a really bad idea. Yeah. And I love the word you use there, grieve too. I felt that so much yesterday. This kind of mix of just sadness and anger Mm. as I watch stuff. I think grieve is just the right word. I think there's lots of reasons it's dangerous. Many we've touched on before, but, uh, when it when it ceases to become the political party that I prefer or the political candidate that I prefer and moves to the political party that is good versus the other political party being evil uh, yeah. or the political party, the political candidate being good versus the other political candidate being evil. When it's kind of like God is on the side of only one uh, and is against the other, then you could easily justify things that like happened yesterday. Uh, if, if you're saying no, even if the election, you know, even if there wasn't fraud that still fighting to keep God's chosen guy or God's chosen candidate in office is worthy of burnt, you know, storming the Capitol, because clearly this isn't, this is a, uh, this is a good versus evil light versus dark moment. Uh, and so that's the real danger for me when we intertwine that we're doing this in the name of Jesus, like we're storming the Capitol, man, you, you could start to justify a lot of things as opposed to, you know what, I really prefer, uh, say, someone saying I really prefer Donald Trump uh, to Joe Biden. But you know what, he lost the election and elections have consequences and so on and so on. That's a completely different posture. And so when you start seeing signs like Jesus saves or when you start seeing these rallies that also have, uh, you know, worship songs tied into them or this, that, it just that 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 uh, that intertwining of of Christianity and nationalism or Christianity and just a specific party. That's where it just gets really dangerous. And we start losing sight of uh, who it is that we worship and, and who it is we've been called to be. And instead you just start to, it all gets gray. And, and so that's where the real danger for me becomes when, when that is like a, uh, a spiritual eternal crusade that was going on yesterday, you could understand why people make moves like they did yesterday. Uh, and it's really dangerous. Yeah. My buddy Kyle is a, a Methodist pastor and a really, really dear friend. He actually wrote something just a little while ago, he said, it's taken me some time to think about yesterday. While lots of my friends were appropriately, wisely, necessarily speaking to what transpired in Washington, I found myself speechless. If you know me, this is an unusual thing, me speechless. After sleeping on it, two things stick out. And I want to really end with these two things because I think he's right on. He says, first, it's notable that this protest and other protests this year were handled differently in both preparation and response. It strikes me that a minority of protesters turning to violence is excusable in some instances and inexcusable in others. The difference is notable because events last spring did not include gallows on the Capitol steps while the building was stormed with violence intent, something that hasn't been done since the War of 1812 at the hands of a foreign army. Second, this picture, and it's a picture, Brian, that you were describing of the, the Jesus poster that we, uh, we saw a lot of yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This picture hasn't left my imagination, the name of Jesus in the midst of all of this. A lot of us think that taking the Lord's name in vain has to do with what we say, i.e., oh my God. In fact, taking the Lord's name in vain has to do with using his name and his reputation for purposes that go against his character and desires. 
This right here is taking the Lord's name in vain. The Lord who, quote, gave up his divine rights and founded a way of non-retaliatory enemy love. I have a lot of friends who aren't followers of Jesus. It's important to me that I share with you that none of this represents, reflects, or honors the Jesus revealed in the Bible, the Jesus I have mm. known, loved, and followed for most of my life. And I thought, it's really man, well yeah, played. just a really good pastoral word. And I wanted to give you, you know, with the 30 seconds or so we have left to, to maybe offer your own pastoral word. Yeah, and I, it was another article that we didn't get to from another person we've had on a bunch of times, Kate Shellnut, uh, who I think very appropriately in Christianity Today did something that we did yesterday, and that was to call Christian leaders and Christ followers to prayer, prayer for peace, uh, safety, she wrote, amid the capital mod, I, mob. I just think we as as Christ followers, I think Ed Stetzer is right that there's a reckoning here where we need to look in the mirror and go, what are our idols? What are we really yeah. passionate about? Where do we put our hope? And if your hope ultimately is in a political leader, political party, what's going on in Washington, then your hope is misplaced. And that's, you've really well talked to us before about when your hope is misplaced, that's what an idol is, what we're putting mm-hmm. our hope in. And I think uh, far too many of us have made an idol out of our political system, uh, and, and, and that this is the reckoning that, that Ed is talking about that all of us, it's easy to point fingers at the crazy people and the people we saw doing things. But I do think rather than point fingers, it's a time to look in the mirror and go, where have I, uh, kind of gone down the road on this? Where, where do I, what do I need to be thinking about? I think it's a good time for self-reflection and for churches and, and for all of us as evangelicals to be, uh, go through a little bit of self-reflection. And as always, this is up at our Facebook page, and we know that uh, times are controversial. So weigh in, but weigh in with grace and love toward one another. We'd love to know what you think. A special thanks to my dear friend Kyle for what he wrote and the many other people that I know are writing in a very pastoral, wise, winsome way online right now. I think we just need more of that. And I'm really excited. Coming up next, we have academic political scientist David Koizis. He's also the author of the book Political Visions and Illusions. He's going to join us for two segments here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And in light of really a lot of events, but yesterday in particular, there was kind of one name that was at the top of our list, to be honest. And that is our guest for the next two segments, David Koizis. Welcome back to the show, sir. Oh, thank you very much. I missed you guys. It's been, <laughs> it's been, it's been, it's been too long. Wish it was under better circumstances. Before we kind of know. dive into it all, would you just oh. briefly introduce yourself again to our audience? Sure. My name is David Koizis. I um, actually grew up in in Wheaton, Illinois, which is not Mm -hmm. far from, um, I think, where all of you are. Mm -hmm. Um, I've lived in Canada for almost 35 years now. I taught for 30 years at a Christian university in in, um, southern Ontario. And at the moment, I'm a a global scholar with an organization called Global Scholars Canada, in -hmm. which I've been um, speaking largely online these days to um, audiences in Brazil and Ukraine and various other parts of the world. Finland as well was was fairly recent one, England. So um, yeah, that's what I'm up to now. And I'm also the the author of two books, Political Visions and Illusions, and We Answer to Another Authority Office in the Image of God. Mm-hmm. David, as, as Ian said, once we saw everything going on this last week, we're like, man, we would really love to have David back on. So thanks for taking the time. And I'm, as someone who's invested their life in politics and and from an academic level uh, and from just a practical level, I just really want to know, what were you thinking yesterday as you watched all that unfolded in Washington, D.C. yesterday? 
I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. This is the sort of thing. It, it reminded me of what happened in 1993 um, in the Russian Federation when um, uh, Boris Yeltsin was in a standoff with the uh, the Russian Congress in that in the so-called White House in in, um, in in Moscow, and it reminded me of that sort of thing. Tanks in the streets and so forth. I don't there. I don't think there were any tanks in Washington, mm. obviously, but uh, but the sort of um, hooliganism that was taking place and the uh, and the, the the ability of these these people simply to to breach the security perimeter around Capitol Hill. That's uh, you know it reminded me in many respects of what of of what happened in AD four ten when Alaric the Goth and his Visigoths sacked Rome. And, 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 and it just stunned the, the known world at the time. And it was after that that St. Augustine wrote his famous book, The City of God. Mm. Now, David, one of the reasons that we're excited to have you on the show is, is not just because I think you have a brilliant political mind, but you also are a follower of Jesus. And I think, you know, watching what we watched yesterday and then, of course, watching social media then erupt with uh, just a myriad of hot takes and opinions some aggressive, some passive, some in between. I, I've been kind of dying just to ask you, what is a Christ follower to make of all of this? Well, um, I, I just wrote something up today and published it on my blog um, that, that addresses some some of these issues here. And I think uh, very largely, I think it has to do with the uh, with the fact that we can't take our political culture for granted. You know, I, I, I had always assumed that English-speaking countries in particular were had a you know, if not a fear of God, at least a respect for the law, mm. and and you know the the, the willingness to uh, to abide by uh, procedures and and so forth, and and uh, and you know I I feel disappointed to be honest, but but I also recognize that human beings are sinful, and that these things can perhaps they can happen anywhere. Yeah, and David, uh, I've been watching CNN and everything on Twitter, like everybody. Uh, in the last 24 hours and a lot of stuff out there about the 25th amendment also possible impeachment i'm curious what do right. you think is going to happen and what do you think should happen over the next two weeks between now and the inauguration i obviously i don't know i can't um, i can't really predict <laughs> I, this is so unprecedented i think i think most of us even even those of us who are accustomed to a certain measure of prognostication um are are, are at a loss to know what's going to happen mm-hmm. You know, do we wait out the next um, um, 13 days or do we, uh, you know, are people going to take, take, uh, take, take action? It's difficult, it's difficult to say. One of, one of the things that you write in your blog, which I would encourage people to check out because your, your posts always seem to make me think or they seem to write from a, an angler perspective that I, I don't see a lot of people taking. You write a good deal about political culture and not taking our political culture for granted. And that yes. phrase, that idea really resonated with me. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, political culture is, it's, it's very important. It's, it's not nearly enough um, attention is, is paid to it, at least particularly by the popular media. But political culture is simply that complex of intangible attitudes that people take towards political life. You know, what kinds of political rhetoric are allowable? What kind of leadership do we expect from, from the people that are governing us? What kind of, um, um, uh, how do we do we distrust authority or do we respect authority? Hmm. Um, all of those things taken together make political culture. And different countries and indeed different, even different regions within countries have different different political cultures. I mean, if, in Illinois, for example, in the city of Chicago, there's, there's 
famously a lot of corruption. But if you go just a little bit farther away to Rockford, at the other end of the, um, uh, you know, towards the Wisconsin border, um, from what I understand, politics there has has had long had a reputation for being squeaky clean. So, you know, the political culture in Rockford is is different in many respects than the political culture in Chicago. And I think that's the case in Canada. Uh, you know, virtually any country has its own political culture. Yeah, and, and what got lost amazingly this week a little bit, David, was the Georgia Senate races. That was the biggest deal for months here, and then it kind of got overshadowed. But uh, again, I, I'd love to just get your into your mind. Were you surprised that, that the both seats turned Democrat? And maybe what, what was going on in Georgia that brought this shift that they haven't seen in, in many years? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's a good question. I'm old enough to remember at least the end of the period when the Democratic when the Southern United States was the solid south for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it maybe uh, maybe some I don't know if any of that has hung on over the course of about 50 years or 60 years, but um um it's pretty solidly Republican now, but I think um I think the black vote had something to do with that. Mm-hmm. More people turning out to vote tends mm-hmm. to favor the Democrats as opposed to the Republicans. Um if there's perceived to be a lot at stake in an election, then um, uh, then people are going to turn out to vote. And that that may help the Democratic Party in the in those two cases. Well, one of the things that seems really obvious and maybe it's been obvious for a lot longer, but I, I think certainly since doing the show and particularly this last year is one, it feels like we're more divided than we've ever been or certainly feels that way. But two, it feels like there's been this I think you use the phrase like collapse of trust. And I'm I'm curious why you think that is and what do, what do we do about it? If this if we really are as divided as it seems and this trust between parties and positions seems to sort of be crumbling a little bit. You know, that's something I've puzzled over as well. I've I've followed politics now for three and a half decades from north of the border. So I, I don't feel as immersed in it as, as I would be if I were if I were actually on the ground. Hmm. But you're right about about the um, about the, the divisiveness in the American polity. And I, I see that in social media. It's 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 unmistakable. I see that in Twitter. I see that in uh, on Facebook, Instagram and so forth. And it's it's, it's difficult to avoid. Um, it, some of it has to do with a kind of urban rural split hmm. and distrust between people who live in cities and metropolitan areas and the uh, and, and the country. I think if you look at the map of of red counties versus blue counties, you'll see that it is very clearly an urban rural divide. Hmm. And it may be that that the divide, which has always existed between urban and rural areas, has has become more exaggerated now. Hmm. Our guest today is David Coises. He's an academic political scientist and author of the book, fabulous book, Political Visions and Illusions. He's kind enough to join us for a second segment. And I'm grateful for voices like yours, minds like yours, because this is an area that often on the show, Brian and I, we feel like we need to talk about, but feel way out of our element, like way over our skis when trying to take a deep dive into this. And, and you talk a good deal about the need for change in sort of the internal candidate selection process within parties. And, and I think Okay, I'm I'm curious what a political scientist thinks is a a better way forward. So could you could you speak a little yeah. more to what you see as the need for change there? Yeah, I I, I certainly could. I, I you know I, I'm I'm almost tempted to say bring back the smoke filled rooms. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, now I'm not really a smoker, so I, I guess some, <laughs> in, in in that respect I, I would have some reservations. But the the smoke filled rooms were a kind of metaphor for a vetting process that took place of of candidates 
prior to their being allowed to, to, to stand for election. So you would have local officials who would, would uh, go through candidates. This is the way things were done before 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 Eisenhower, would, 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 would he win? Is he a qualified candidate and so forth? You had Republican candidates in, the, um, um, in 1952, or Republican officials, rather, in 1952, trying to decide whether General Eisenhower uh, would be, uh, as opposed to Robert Taft, for example, would be a, would be good candidates to support for the presidency. And on the other side, you had you had the Democrats doing the same thing with Adlai Stevenson and some other Democratic um, uh, prospective candidates as well. And they were able to ensure a certain degree of competence on the part of those candidates before they were set before the American public. In 1968, um, after um, the um, um, the election that brought um, Richard Richard Nixon to power and and saw Lyndon Johnson bowing out of the race, uh, I guess in the in the spring after some of the primary elections had already been um, been uh, fought, uh, the, 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 there was a hue and cry because Hubert Humphrey was put in Vice President Hubert Humphrey Johnson's Vice President was put into the uh, the spot of uh, for running for the Democrats, despite the fact that he had, he had not run for a single primary election. Hmm. So as a consequence of that, there was an effort to democratize the process, and it ended up backfiring, in my view, wow. because um, you cannot overly democratize a political system. Uh, a system should have democratic elements, yes, but not everything should necessarily be dem- democratically elected. Hmm. And I think, um, um, I think a candidate selection process, you need to trust officials within the, the respective parties to be able to vet a candidate rather than just letting them run for what's in effect a beauty contest, whether they're competent or whether they are even patriotic, whether they're whether they have the interests of the country at, at heart. And I think that's a recipe for disaster. And I think that's what the United States has come close to. Yeah. And yeah. David, as you talk about changes that are needed in the process, again, Twitter, all sorts of places talked a lot since November about the Electoral College versus popular right. vote. Uh, what do you think about that? Where do you land on the importance of the Electoral College versus going to a complete popular vote nationwide? Right. I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds about that. On the one hand, I think, I think a popular vote might be – it might shorten the process to some degree. There would have to be some kind of a, of a runoff election as they have in France where if you had, say, three or four um, candidates who were fairly evenly – matched, then um, the top two vote getters would have to run again to ensure that one got an absolute majority. Hmm. Um, Or else you could have ranked voting for candidates. And I don't think that would be a bad idea. Now, partisans of the um, um, advocates of the Electoral College point out that the United States is a federal system. And that smaller states are overrepresented in a way that in a way that that prevents their interests being run roughshod over. And I'm sympathetic um, to that on a certain level as well. But the Electoral College does not function the way that the founders um, thought it would because they thought the electors would would use independent judgment in uh, in choosing um, a a president, and that's not the way that it's turned out. Okay, so tell me more about that then. How how has it turned out? Because I feel like I see a lot of debate sometimes from experts but often, you know, from people, ordinary individuals who are trying to make sense of it all. How how has it turned out in your in your opinion? Well, it's turned out almost as though it's a popular vote because there are, you know, there's a winner and there's a there's a loser. The the electoral college 
Um, basically, because the, the vast majority of states have a, a winner-take-all rule that, that whoever wins the popular vote in the state um, would end up getting all of the electors from the state. So to, to, to win California, the largest state in the union, means that all of the electors from California goes to a particular candidate. So it exaggerates the, the, the win of one um, candidate over the other. It makes it look as though there's a huge mandate behind a candidate when mm. the country may in fact be sharply divided as it really is. Yeah. And David, as a, as a Christ follower, as we've talked in the past, Ian and I both being pastors, uh, what would you like to hear pastors down here in America talking to their congregations? How would you like to see pastors uh, and church leader, leaders engaging with kind of all that's going on politically right now? I think that they need to talk about justice. I think um, in the in the the postscript to Political Visions and Illusions, the second edition, there's a, a chapter uh, about about the role of the institutional church, of pastors and um, general assemblies and synodical bodies and so forth, and how to deal with politics. And, you know, I think to try to comment on, say, well, you know, you need to support a $15 minimum wage, that goes too far. But I do think that, that people need to be... T- uh, need to, need to be, I, I almost said preached at, you know, maybe that's not the, the best way to, 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 to um, express it. But I think people need to be aware of their obligations as, as citizens living in a democratic country and to be agents of the kingdom of God, yeah. you know, not as though we're, we're out to build the kingdom of God, but at least to recognize that our first loyalty is to the kingdom of God. That's really good. Now, I, I know that you have other interests besides just simply politics and political, political discussions. And I'd love to know what your thoughts are regarding the pandemic and maybe paint a picture for us what a what a post-pandemic future could potentially look like for us. Yes, this is this is something that's very personal right now because my my mother-in-law died on um, the 29th of December, so just you know a couple of weeks ago, wow. and it was it was COVID related. Um, oh. She was she was in a long-term care home, and and I have a good friend in Ottawa, the the capital of Canada, who last I heard was in hospital quite seriously ill with COVID. And just two days before his hospitalization, his father-in-law died of COVID. Oh my gosh. So, you know, wow. these are things that, that are, are hitting home to, to, to very many people. How is a post-COVID um, environment going to look like? Difficult to say. I think some of the changes that have taken place, like all of these online fora, um, I think they're going to they're going to keep out, keep on, and and it may be that that long distance teaching is going to be a, a fact of life from now on. But I don't think there it's an adequate substitute for in person communion amongst persons created in the image of God. Yeah, there is no substitute for that. Yeah, David, as yeah. always, we have we have so enjoyed having you back here on the show, and look forward to doing it again. Yeah, she tell everybody. Uh, where can they find you? Uh, social media, website, where can they get your books? Why don't you uh, tell right. everybody where they can find you? Yeah, uh, the best place to, to find me is on my blog. It's called Notes from a Byzantine Right Calvinist. If you just, <laughs> if you just put that into, the, um, into Google, it, it will come up and you'll find me and you'll find links to, um, uh, to blogs, to um, Global Scholars Canada, where I, um, um, uh, where I uh, park my credentials these days. You can find <laughs> links to my books, including the Portuguese edition of um, Political Visions and Illusions. So that's the best place to find me. Well, David, not only do I think that you are incredibly brilliant, but you're always such a gracious, winsome guest. And uh, we hope you'll come back again sometime soon. Thank you so much for making well, the time. Well, to thank you today. very much. I, I appreciate mm-hmm. that.
Hey, it's our pleasure. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I mentioned at the very beginning of the hour and then a couple of times since then, probably, that we're committing this whole first hour, the first half of the show, to talk about what happened to the Capitol yesterday because there's a, there is a lot of layers to it. And we don't typically invest this much time to sort of, quote unquote, news stories. But I... Maybe I'm off on this, Brian, but this, this feels like more than just a news story. This feels more than mm-hmm. just breaking headline and this Correct. is what's happening in our country. Like I just feel – and I, I think as evidenced by a number of Christian leaders that you and I really care about or really value or really respect also weighing in, I think that's been, for me at least, the evidence that like, oh, yeah, there's way more going on here than just, oh, something happened and we should respond. So – it's a little bit of a break from format for us to spend a whole hour talking about something. But I found this other article. I mean, this whole hour is kind of brought to you by Christianity Today. But <laughs> yes. uh, Daniel Harrell wrote an article and the headline says, we serve the purposes of God, not the politics of men. The lust for power and the lure of lies collapse under the weight of truth. That packs quite a punch. This mm-hmm. was just posted a few hours ago. Why don't you get us into kind of his premise and thesis here? Yeah, and Daniel's the editor-in-chief over at Christianity Today. He wrote, watching in shock and dismay at the overrun of the Capitol on Wednesday, instigated by the president, emotions ran the range from heartbreak and fury all the way to delight. The melee was cleared by police, though the damage was done and at least one and as many as four lives lost. It was not hard to reimagine the scene and the death count had the mob... uh, not been mostly white. There's no shortage of commentary with politicians finding some backbone instead of chasing the wind. Politicians and pundits insisted this is not America, but this is America, he writes. Mm. We are helplessly divided, entrenched, angry, and unrepentant. All characteristics scripture characterizes as, quote, the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a state of reality opposed to the kingdom of God. That, like you said, packing a heavy punch. Let's stop there for a sec. Uh, what do you think of his assessment when he says this is America and this is why this is America? Yeah, I, I actually, I wish I had time to do more reading on this because there, I do feel like there is some level of cognitive dissonance at work when we do say, ah, this isn't our America, this isn't our country. It's almost right. a way of either excusing others' behavior or, or even maybe our own entrenchment in the division by saying like, ah, this isn't, the America I grew up with or whatever qualifiers you would maybe add, it does in some sense, at least in a cerebral sense, let us off the hook. If we can just sort of say, this isn't America, this is, this isn't really who we are when time and time again, we're seeing in the headlines and in our own mm-hmm. communities, maybe this is more of what's true of us right now. Maybe part of the symptom, maybe part of the, the issue is that we've, We've glazed over so many of these problems, still declaring emphatically, this isn't America, this isn't America. And I'll be honest, there's there's plenty of people that maybe we haven't paid attention to enough who have been saying, this is America, this is part of the problem. This is why we've seen some of this unrest slowly rise. And I think uh, I think his call here to, to maybe engage with a deeper level of transparency and maybe humility – maybe even internal examination, that's dangerous. That's difficult to do, right? Like it's mm-hmm. easy to kind of point out there like what they're, you know, but to even see where 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 are some of these characteristics present in my own heart? That's that's tough, tough work. 
Absolutely. And the, the whole article is worth reading, obviously, we, it's our Facebook page and also Christianity Today. But I just want to jump to the end because I think this is ripe for discussion. The last two paragraphs, this is how he closes. He says, as Christians, whatever our politics, yesterday demands we disentangle and reject the suspicions, lies, grievances, umbrages and arrogance that have characterized our politics and country and its leaders as of late. We must refuse to let our faith be co-opted by political power and principalities, despite our allegiance to country, and recommit with humble hearts to Christ and his kingdom, a full net bursting to the break point, a nod to God's love for all things. The kingdom hauls in the whole of creation without question, then sorts the good fish from the bad. He says, though I dare say the good still gets fried in a pan and eaten for supper. That's funny. (laughs) The Almighty has his own purposes. And here's his last paragraph. At the risk of cliche, the truth of the gospel asserts love never fails or stands down. It casts out fear, but also anger, hate, anxiety, and deceit. Mm. Rather than any passive acquiescence, love ferociously resists with the force of resurrection, day by day, defeating even death and the devil for the sake of justice and mercy and humility on earth. Without love, we're nothing, because love is everything. That, again, is Daniel Harrell uh, today, editor-in-chief. At Christianity Today, and I wanted to read, make sure we got to those last two paragraphs, Ian, because I thought, you know what, I, I think he he's spot on to say, hey, if we're surrounded by suspicions and lies and grievances and arrogance and umbrages, he says, this division that we talk about, if, if we watch that yesterday and it's so clearly in front of us, he's like, we as Christians knew, regardless of if you're right or left or whatever you might be, we've got to get to the point, I love his words, where we disentangle and reject these things and become people of love and become people who stand up and become people who stand in the gap. And whatever other metaphor you want to use, like this gets back to what we had just said earlier in the show, that maybe this is a time for we as Christians to actually look in the mirror rather than point fingers. And and I think that he's giving us great stuff to say, when we look in the mirror, ask yourself, Uh, Am I displaying love? Am I fearful? Uh, Where's their anger and hate and anxiety? I mean, where am I looking more like what he said earlier, the world versus Jesus? I think these are the really hard questions if there's really going to be change in ourselves, in the churches around us and in our country. I think these are the hard questions we have to ask as individuals. I think it's got to be a both and, though. I do sometimes find that the I have to look inward before I before I criticize someone else mantra is a good rule of thumb in most circumstances. However, I do also think that are times where being a Christ follower means forfeiting the luxury of neutrality in the face mm-hmm. of injustice where we don't we don't get to see what we saw yesterday and go, ah, it's, I'm going to take, take care of me and my house. That's what I like. Well, yeah, obviously, in a, in a big cosmic sense. You know, we talk about that Mother Teresa quote, like, oh, you want to change the world? Yeah, go home and love your family. Yes, obviously that. I mean, I've even tweeted, I tweeted something a couple of weeks ago. I said, the Bible is first a mirror, not binoculars. I still, I Ooh. believe that. When we read it, it's, yeah, we should first say, Lord, what are you exposing in my own heart? Like, you, you know, you pray with David, like, mm-hmm. what is, what in me is offensive? Like, weed that out and lead me in the way everlasting. And yet there are also times where I do think the Christian has a responsibility to say, that's not of Jesus. That's not of his kingdom. That's mm-hmm. and and the assumption or the assertion that it is uh, also needs to be called out. And that's difficult because, like we've said on the show for two years, there is sometimes an overemphasis on call out culture. And we can see, you know, a lot of a lot of brothers and sisters of of the faith 
way too far on the other side where they're calling out everybody all the time for everything. You're like, well, that might, but who's to say, you know what I mean? Like that's the quote here that he references in um, uh, Abraham Lincoln saying, yeah, we, we fought this war and he said, both read the same Bible both pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. Wow. It doesn't that describe some of what we're feeling right now that absolutely, of course, everyone in their own camp thinks they're right. And that can be, that can be really uh, powerless feeling, really hopeless. We're like, wow, how, how can both sides claim the same, the same mm-hmm. Jesus? I don't, I don't know if you feel any of that tension right now. I really do. Earlier we talked about, you know, as they're storming the Capitol, having Jesus saves and, and going, man, how are we claiming the same Jesus? Like what, what is going on here? I, I totally felt that tension. And I think you make a great point. I think we start by looking inward, but it doesn't stop there. I think that's a, right. that's a great point because a lot of times, uh, it's, it becomes a lot more comfortable to stop there and go, even if yes. I'm going to wrestle with the hard questions, just kind of keep it in house. I think that's absolutely true. I think, I think a good way is not just look inward. Let's start, make sure you look inward, but then uh, go out and search out justice and, and speak up to where, where uh, things need to be said and need to be corrected. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, I, I, we appreciate your feedback and everyone weighing in. That's uh, like every article. This is posted up on our Facebook page at Common Good Talk, and we would love to know what you think. Coming up next, we're going to do what we normally do at the very top of the show, and that's just to kind of tackle some headlines that we found interesting or compelling or at the very least relevant to life right now. So that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about some headlines. And then also, did you know that The Common Good is two years old today? We're going to celebrate that later in the show. Listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And normally, to begin the show, we tackle a couple of headlines. They're not always necessarily all that relevant or pertinent, but sometimes it's just stuff that we've come across in our own our own research that we hope will at the very least be interesting but we wanted to spend that whole first hour talking about what, what happened at the capitol and so if you're just joining us live right now you can go back and listen to the first half on the podcast but what we typically do based on whoever's sort of driving for that week put a bunch of articles in there and then let the other person choose so i'm going to continue with that tradition on today the common goods birthday brian and uh and let you choose which article you'd like to tackle first yeah, at the top of your list here of the articles you put on was another pastor from Hillsong. So Hillsong is just such a well-known church. So it's like its own denomination, right? Like organization yeah. and all with Carl Lentz uh, in the last couple months, uh, last month or two of his resignation, very high profile in Hillsong, New York. Now the pastors of Hillsong Dallas resigned this past weekend, somewhat surprisingly to people. They just announced in uh, that the last 10 years of church planting mode has taken a bit of a toll on him and his wife, and they just feel like it's time for a transition and some time to get healthy. And when you first read it, you're like, okay, like that makes sense. That's That makes sense. But the the amount of comments and articles that have been like, I don't believe them. There's all this stuff going on to Hillsong now. It just feels so messy. And I don't even have mm. much commentary on it except to say, man, there's just a lot of smoke around Hillsong right now. And you you just hope that uh, that that there's not more going on. And, and and hopefully these people really are just stepping away. The Bogards are their name, uh, just stepping away for some rest. But uh, it seemed to have ca- caught the church really off guard. And it's causing a lot of people to ask, man, what's going on overall at Hillsong right now? 
it does really bum me out. I remember, you know, almost five years ago when I left the church that I was pastoring to come here to community in Naperville, there wasn't even any necessarily a uh, big Chicago scandal, but like the moment that people started to find out that, you know, we were leaving people's gut reaction. You almost can't blame them. was, Oh gosh, what happened? I'm yes. like, oh, no, 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 nothing, nothing, all good. Bad, <laughs> nothing bad at all. Actually. Yeah, it was, but that, that is sort of our, um, unfortunately that's becoming people's suspicion, I guess, in that regard is becoming more and more mm-hmm. obvious that it's often warranted more often than not, which speaking yeah. of which this, this one from uh, Stephanie Martin just breaks my heart. Fallout begins oh, yeah. after a report on Ravi Zacharias's abuses. That's right. Abuses plural. This was written a couple of days ago. What's, what's going on here? It's like you said, it's heartbreaking. I keep yeah. going back to when he passed away and you and I did a whole segment about uh, how important he was like in, in our time growing up and in other people and, and the life he had lived. And now to see what's going on, it's just crazy. It says now that the preliminary report has confirmed sexual misconduct by Ravi Zacharias, some organizations and people connected to his ministry are cutting ties. Uh, independent investigators recently concluded that, quote, significant, credible evidence exists of misconduct by Zacharias, including some behavior even, quote, more serious than what's been disclosed before. The backstory involved years of allegations and denials, which church leaders, which is what we're reading from, has covered extensively and has to do with him co-owning spas and what was going on at these spas and uh, uh, power and money. I mean, man, you read these and it's just it's unbe- it's it's just heartbreaking, infuriating, unbelievable. And it leaves you going like, how did people know? Like, how didn't you see this? How didn't anyone right. see like this was no. as respected of a guy as there right. was. Right. And, and now to read this stuff, man, is just uh, the people in the report calling him predator, a predator and predatory and all this stuff. Yeah. And. Uh, and then it causes you to go, what do we do with his writings? What do we do with his books? What do we, you know, people are cutting off his radio uh, stuff that has always, that has got, has extended beyond his death. Uh, you know, Moody Radio replaced his weekly programming, Let My People Think. Uh, and and so it's just, it's just craziness. It does cause us to, uh, to again, ask questions about the, uh, the celebrity Christian, the Christian celebrity culture. Um, but also just, it's just heartbreaking and infuriating. And these stories keep happening. Real quickly then, Brian, just 20, 30 seconds. What do you say to the person who's hearing us right now and they're thinking, oh, why why even bother bringing this up, Brian and Ian? Aren't you guys pastors? Aren't we supposed to be unifying? Aren't we supposed to be peacemakers? Aren't you being divisive by continuing to cover this story? It's a great question. I think I think it's important uh, that when we put our, I almost said our faith, we don't put our faith in writers and speakers, but when we put our trust, uh, that we know what's going on, that it's actually who they are and that, uh, integrity matters. Character of our leaders matter more than their academics and their intelligence or their charisma or their speaking ability. And so, yeah, I hate doing stories about Ravi Zacharias and Carl Lentz and James McDonald and keeps going. Uh, But I do think it's certainly important because you and I have said a million times here, like, let's quit with making celebrities out of people who don't have the character and the integrity for that to hold up. Uh, And I don't know who has it under celebrity, but we have to stop this within the church. We have to start admiring again uh, the people who are, you know, faithful and have high integrity uh, versus the people who have the charisma and the flash and the whatever else, because then we get left with this. And Ravi Zacharias played a huge role in a lot of people's faith. And now he's playing, quite frankly, a huge role in a lot of people's faith struggling if that's where they put their faith in the first place. 
Uh, and so that's why I feel like it's important for us to cover. That was that was good, Brian. More than 20 seconds, but that, that was it good. was I got going. Uh, all, right. <laughs> all right. So just read the headline of the next one. Then we won't we won't unpack that much, but just read it. Uh, I think I have the right order and deadliest week so far. Is this the one U.S. loses yeah. more than 18,400 lives to covid? So I don't know what else there is to say. A lot of people politicize covid in this that, but a lot of people are still dying and it's tragic. Yeah, right. And this is this article is uh, a few days old. Actually, I think we had our deadliest day. Uh, to date yesterday, actually. So wow. I'd have to pull out those numbers again, but just uh, trying to do our part, I guess, to keep that out in front of people. I, I think it's easy to forget or to put on the back burner. I totally, I totally understand why. Um, but these last two will be <laughs> a little less heavy, I guess. I mean, this is this next one's sad. If you're a big fan of family video, family video finally calls it quits, closes remaining stores across America. I kind of can't believe there were any that were open I know to begin with even even pre-pandemic is this something that you've spent any time thinking about at all no I know yeah I remember a story a little bit ago about there being one blockbuster video left in the whole country yeah. but yeah we stream everything now right you don't need the video store I mean I don't know if I've ever told you three years in high school I worked at the local video store that was my job in high school and so uh-huh. I, I do have a special love for the local video store but even I know it's 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 a bit past its time <laughs> <laughs> I do remember when like Redbox was becoming a thing and you know, Blockbuster was still kind of king. And I remember even like overhearing, hi, Pippa, overhearing people uh, <laughs> from <laughs> from Blockbuster talk about like, oh, can you believe these red box attempts? And I remember thinking even then, like, this might be a bigger problem for you than you realize. But yes. Uh, all right. Real quickly, this one probably is more uh, indicative of like my life stage. But you know, just read us read us this uh, wonderful news. This requires so much uh, celebration. Because uh, no, from even when my kids were little, I will just read the uh, the headline. PBS cancels Caillou. 2021 is already looking up. Caillou is simply the worst cartoon out there and everybody's kids have watched it and nobody understands it. And so uh, good riddance to Caillou. That's how I feel about that. You're also not a fan of Caillou. Is that what I'm hearing? No, it's such a strange. Do your kids watch it at all? No, it's we've never. We've never allowed them. Really? My kids watch. They, they had small spots in life where they watch Caillou and it's such a strange like weird car- cartoon and I never knew why it lasted so it lasted this long but it's going away okay so real quickly um which is worse Caillou or the Wiggles amazingly Mike no I, not any of my three kids went through a Wiggles or a Barney stage so I can't speak to that uh, uh, you've but seen I do them, know Caillou though. was terrible I have I I think I would still rate Caillou worse <laughs> But I, I didn't have to go through stages where, like, the Wiggles was on all the time. But, yeah, Caillou's awful. awful. Yeah, I, I, I still wake up sometimes with, with Wiggles songs in my head, like, when, in, like, the cold sweat. <laughs> like, it's a, real, it's a real nightmare. Anyway, I uh, was trying to end on a slightly, slightly happier note, but all those headlines yes. are up on our Facebook page, and we would love to know what you think. I also know that for a lot of us, this last year has been deeply challenging in the area of mental health. So coming up next, I want to talk about how to broach the topic of mental health with young people in particular. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Uh, We have talked a lot, though, probably even before the pandemic, but in particular this year, has been incredibly difficult in the area of mental health. Our church actually did a whole series on mental health, which by the response 
we we realized like how just how needed it was. Like I think we had a sense, mm-hmm. but then when you commit like an entire four week series on depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation, and then you just get. I mean, we got an onslaught of feedback, good, good, positive feedback. It was like, oh, man, this might be a, a bigger, a bigger need than we realized. Also knowing that just because just because our calendar is switched into 2021 doesn't mean that all of our problems and issues from the previous year disappear. And right. I've I felt really compelled and convicted to tackle the issue of mental health and how we actually broach the topic with young people. And my, my kids are maybe a bit young for that, but like your your kids ages are like are square in what this author Shane Pruitt is, is kind of getting after because so often that can be really intimidating for, for pastors and parents and leaders mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to broach a topic like this. Plus um, there's a list and I know that Brian really loves lists. So <laughs> why don't it's you, uh, why don't you get us into this? Let me jump into this, but this is from outreach magazine. I, I have to ask you, this is a total aside it has nothing to do with the article. Does it mess with you when you open up an article and your boss is on a magazine cover right there? I've never <laughs> lived in that kind of world. Dave Ferguson is staring back at me and uh, it happens a lot. So you kind of, you kind of get used to it actually. You get used to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he, he's looking back at me right now as I read this. So uh, yeah, again, this is at outreach magazine and a really important topic. It says, according to a recent Barna study, Half of the 18-year-olds in the United States report feeling anxiety and a fear of failure, and about 40% said they often felt sad or depressed, while slightly fewer young people said they felt lonely and isolated from others. That was 34%. The church in America is undoubtedly doing better engaging the ever-growing anxiety of younger generations, but we still have a long way to go. Hmm. We used to largely ignore it or or spiritualize it away, meaning the only response to mental and emotional health was to read the Bible and to pray more, among other disciplines. This isn't wrong. Our spiritual disciplines play a very important role in mental and emotional health, but some have clinical struggles that need additional attention. Don't underestimate the power of open, honest, and vulnerable dialogue with the youth in your church about their worries, anxieties, or fears. And then there's the list. He says, here are eight things to remember as churches start these conversations. But like you said, it's certainly um, a growing issue. As a dad, like you said, I've got a 17-year-old and a 13-year-old and 11-year-old. I think I got their ages right. And so <laughs> what, what you're you probably, amazed you probably by— probably learn their names, actually. Uh, it's a good point. What you're amazed by is uh, you think about it at like 16, 17, but what you're amazed by is the is the kids, the younger ages, and how early this kind of stuff becomes an issue. Yeah. Uh, and you're, it, it surprises you every time. And so th- the call here for churches to go, hey, this is a big deal uh, with our high school kids, our junior high kids, and and uh, something we need to talk about. I mean, you and I were both youth pastors. I know when I was a youth uh-huh. pastor in the early 2000s, I wasn't talking about depression and anxiety. I was, it was like, let's have pizza and play dodgeball, and you know what I mean, and that, and then teach a Bible lesson, and that was all fun and great. I didn't give one thought. I can't even remember ever bringing up the topic of depression. And part of that was because it wasn't part of my experience. But another one, it wasn't on a front burner that I at least felt that way. I don't know if you felt that way. You were were a little later in youth ministry than I was. But I just never felt like it was a front burner issue. Even when you were reading the magazines and the articles, it wasn't something that we were really talking about. I, I think my very first day as a youth pastor right out of undergrad, someone at the local high school took their own life. It was, oh, my, it was my very first day. And the high school not only was like a quarter of a mile down the road, so it was, you know, geographically very close, but it was also somebody who was friends with a number of students in our youth group. So it was like, wow, day one, here's Ian, meet your new youth pastor. 
And then four or five of them said, Hey, I have questions about suicide and mental health. So for, for me, at least, one. yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it definitely was like a, all right, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to really try to get a handle on this and, and do it quickly. Cause this is something that like my current students are, are grieving mm-hmm. and experiencing. And that's probably why this article kind of endeared me because I thought these eight things to remember were actually really helpful. And the kinds of things that I wish someone had told me, you know, when I was, Mm-hmm. 20 or 21 being entrusted with an entire youth group. So let me like read, let me just read all eight and then I'll let you kind of pick one or two that, you know, stand out in particular. Does that sound right? That's great. Okay. Number one, develop proper biblical teaching on the role of emotions and thoughts in our walk with Jesus. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Number two, cultivate an atmosphere in our churches that makes it safe for people to share their struggles. I would almost put that one. Number one, to be honest, mm-hmm. be, be proactive in creating safe spaces. Number three, leaders be transparent about your own struggles in this area. This gives permission for others to do the same. They won't do what their leaders aren't willing to do. I can't, I mean, I would, that one's tied for number one, in my opinion, you know, to, to talk about <laughs> yeah. this as a series, but not actually, you know, share your own struggle. Number four, make emotional and mental health a part of your discipleship process and leadership pipeline. Number five, teach about God's common grace, of doctors, counselors, medicine, et cetera. God can still get the glory as these means of healing are provided through his common grace. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Number six, keep trusted resources, books, and articles as ready references for your people. Emphasis on ready, I would say. Number seven, if possible, have a trusted counselor or counseling center to which you can refer people. Absolutely. If you jump into this conversation, people will likely ask you where they can go to get help from a counselor. And then number eight, preach the power of the gospel. There is a popular statement with young adults, quote, it's okay to not be okay. This is a good starting place because it encourages transparency and honesty, but we must realize the statement is just a starting place. The gospel goes further than that. The gospel teaches Mm -hmm. it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way when there is another way. And Jesus is that way. So I thought those eight were really practical, really helpful. Any stand out to you? Any maybe you resonate with or maybe perhaps you disagree with it's hard because as you read them and you did it too it was like that's number one wait no no that's yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> they're all wonderful you you tagged the one early on there that jumped out to me it's difficult not just in youth ministry but in churches in general and in homes like in families uh to cultivate an atmosphere that make it safe for people to share their struggles uh, you know, you might be like, well, no one's struggling here. And the answer to that might be that no one feels comfortable sharing that they're struggling. And and how do we think that through? Part of it is what you just said, your church preaching on it, mm-hmm. uh, brought it out because it said, hey, we're not only good with you talking to us, we're going to talk about it and we are going to share and we are going to tackle this head on. Uh, I think then it does not become surprising that you start hearing things come out. And so uh, of all of them, and they're all great, but that one about cultivating an atmosphere takes work, takes time. But I think if we do that correctly, it allows, in this case, students, but in a, in you know, regular in churches that everybody or in families when you're trying to get your kids to talk, if there's an atmosphere of safety uh, for people to share their struggles, I think that is a huge one. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's important too because when we cultivate those things, it's it's really thinking about the long game. Like obviously, my example. Um, isn't ideal to like come in and something has already happened and you need to like hit the ground running. But if we can be proactively, even before we know that there's a need or an issue, I guarantee you if, if your church is more than four people, there probably is an issue. If your organization, you know, has anybody other than you, there's probably an, you know what I mean? Like there's, it's, it's something that I think is a greater need than many of us realize, especially after the year that we've had. And I think mm-hmm. cultivating that space, I think if I could brag on community, 
you know, a couple of things we did that I was really proud of. We, um, we interviewed mental health experts, so we weren't trying to pretend like we were the experts. We had a number of people in our church and even on our staff who told their own story about their own battles. People found that to be so freeing. Like, oh, I know, wait, I know that guy. He's been on the screen before. He's been on the stage before. He led a Bible study. So I think, man, I was just blown away by the the courage of our own community and they're willing to share their story. And of course, the you know, the professionals that we brought in were just stellar. Like I, I did one of the interviews and I was like, I don't even want to talk anymore. I just want to let you talk <laughs> yeah, because your yeah. insight and your perspective, I just think, yeah, so helpful. And I was just really, really, Really appreciative of a, of a church willing to do that. And uh, it's been a tough year. Speaking of a tough year, by the way, as a segue, I wasn't planning. I found this article fascinating. It says six ways to reboot your brain after a hard year of COVID-19, according to science. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, howdy, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Cal Polk, Brian Fromm. And yeehaw. Yeehaw. yep, that's that's <laughs> the extent of my uh, my cowboy vernacular. But uh, bah, that might not even be accurate. Who knows? I'll, I'll think I'll think of more throughout the show. Um, before we get into this article on brain science, it's not really about brain science, but it's got a picture of a brain on the headline. So it makes me feel like we're reading about brain it science. Says science. It and says the word science. science right. So. The word science and brain <laughs> is in the headline. That is that's good enough for me. That's how much of a novice I am. But I, I want to make sure that we get it in there because what would what would a common good show be without what holidays it is? I just feel like this has become it would be a letdown. Your fear would be. <laughs> that's what it would be. Some some might say your show is already a letdown. Whether or not <laughs> more of a letdown holidays, right? <laughs> I do I do want to say though, uh, Merry Christmas to our Orthodox brothers and sisters. I mentioned that yesterday. So today mm-hmm. is Christmas Day um, in a lot of Orthodox traditions. But uh, I only have two weird ones today. It's it's National Tempura Day. Are you a tempura guy? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe <laughs> I might be not know it, but I would say no. It's a it's a Japanese like seafood dish. It's uh, oh no 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 no. <laughs> what really? No. Not even like like uh, sushi? Are you a sushi guy? I'm not. Oh, I'm not. I, it's a weird thing. My my wife and I have never been seafood people, partially because I just I've I've never been a huge seafood fan. But she's always had uh, an allergy to certain kinds of seafood, and so just you just we just never had seafood. But now my oldest daughter has gotten into it, and it's always like, oh, maybe we should become seafood people. So yeah. maybe 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 2021 will be what the year of seafood for me. Unlikely, but. We'll hope anyway. Uh, it's <laughs> it's also National Bobblehead Day. Are you okay? Are you a, a fan of bobbleheads? Weird man. I find them weird. Yeah, but. they are. They are pretty. How did that ever become like a thing? Like, how did that I become? No, it's like it's like how baffled I am by certain YouTube videos going viral. You're like, why this yeah. one? Like, I don't. That's how bobbleheads feel to me. Either way, that's not all yep. that interesting. But uh, well, if they decided to make uh, common, if they made common good bobbleheads, I think we'd be all into that. I I would not be comfortable with that. That would make me. Oh, I would super. Be. I would be. <laughs> if somebody right. wants to do that for us. I'm all for it. <laughs> who, 
Who is listening that like specializes know. in one-off bobbleheads? Like they They're like, them. oh, I got this. I got this. Ron Swanson is listening. He's like, I'm going to carve one in my shop tonight. Okay. That'd be fun. Here La- is common and here is good. Yeah, right. Laughing pastors bobbleheads. Okay. <laughs> so this is another list. So it's uh, it's my birthday gift to you, Brian. Not your birthday, Thank but the you. birthday of the show. We're going to spend the last segment of the day kind of reflecting on that. But six ways to reboot your brain after a hard year of COVID-19, according to science. What's going on here? Yeah, they said there's no doubt uh, that 2020 was difficult for everyone and tragic for many. But now vaccines against COVID-19 are finally being administered, giving a much needed hope of a return to normality and a happy 2021. However, months of anxiety, grief, loneliness can easily create a spiral of negativity that's hard to break out of. That's because chronic stress changes the brain. And sometimes when we're low, we have no interest in doing the things that could actually make us feel better. That's true. Uh, To enjoy our lives in 2021, we need to snap out of destructive habits and get our energy levels back. In some cases, that may initially mean forcing yourself to do things that will gradually make you feel better. If you're experiencing more severe symptoms, however, you may want to speak to a professional about therapy and medication. So here are six evidence-based ways to change our brains for the better. So before getting into them, I think it is uh, fascinating that there we're all like, oh, I, hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel. 2021, you know, vaccines and maybe, you know, we're going to get out of this and get a little bit back to normal. Very important point here that even when things are, quote unquote, a little more normal, there's still going to be a lot of baggage and things that have changed and things that we've gone through in 2020 yeah. uh, that have kind of almost rewired our brains. And and that this is kind of a helpful way to go. Here's some things you could do uh, in their words to reboot your brain. Well, speaking of helpful, number one, be kind and helpful. It says kindness, altruism, and empathy can affect the brain. One study showed that making a charitable donation activated the brain's reward system in a similar way to actually receiving money. This also applies to helping others who have been wronged. Volunteering can also give a sense of meaning in life, promoting happiness, health, and well-being. Older adults who volunteer regularly also exhibit greater life satisfaction and reduce depression and anxiety. In short, Making others happy is a great way to make yourself happy. And again, this isn't written from a, you know, particular Christian response, but I, I think that you'll find that in a lot of these, like, oh, I've heard a sermon kind of like that, or at exactly. least mentioned something like that. And I always, I always find that fascinating. Yeah. Number two, you set me up here. Number two is <laughs> exercise. Exercise has been linked with both better physical and mental health, including improved cardiovascular health and reduced depression. In childhood, exercise is associated with better school performance, while it promotes better cognition and job performance in young adults. In older adults, exercise maintains cognitive performance and provides resilience against neurodegenerative disorders such as dementia. What's more, studies have shown that individuals with higher levels of fitness have increased brain volume which is associated with better cognitive performance in older adults. Simply put, people who exercise also live longer. So again, we know this, but exercising, especially coming out of 2020, is going to be super helpful for you. Yeah, let me uh, put down my Oreos real quick before I read this next one. (laughs) Number three, eat well. Nutrition can substantially influence the development and health of brain structure and function. It provides the proper building blocks for the brain to create and maintain Connections, which is critical for improved cognition and academic performance. Previous evidence has shown that long-term lack of nutrients can lead to structural and functional damage to the brain, 
while a good quality diet is related to larger brain volume. One study of 20,000 participants from the UK Biobank showed that a higher intake of cereal was associated with the long-term beneficial effects of increased volume of gray matter, a key component of the central nervous system, which is linked to improved cognition. However, diets rich in sugar, saturated fats, or calories can damage neural function. They can also reduce the brain's ability to make new neural connections, which negatively affects cognition. Again, the theme that we're kind of seeing here is like, hey, uh, people so often exercise just so that, like their physical body looks and feels better or, you know, their diet in the same way. But to know that it affects our brain in ways that we might not be aware of, I just think is, is super fascinating. Absolutely. The next one, uh, and this is a tough one in the midst of COVID, mm-hmm. uh, keep socially connected. Loneliness and social isolation is prevalent across all ages, genders, and cultures, further elevated by the pandemic. Robust scientific evidence has indicated that social isolation is detrimental to physical, cognitive, and mental health. In fact, one recent study showed that there were negative effects of COVID-19 isolation on emotional cognition, but that this effect was smaller in those that stayed connected with others during the lockdown. So it says at the end in 2021, be sure to keep up with family and friends, but also expand your horizons and make some new connections. I I think that is, you're right. It's easier said than done. But I also find that in a lot of my conversations, people are are more uh, mindful, I guess, more cognizant mm-hmm. of the effects that isolation is having on them because it's it's happening in such a large degree. And right. uh, this this fifth one here, I just, I think is, so evergreen. The brain changes during critical periods of development, which is why the suggestion is learn something new. It's also a lifelong process. Novel expressions such as learning new skills can modify both brain function and the underlying brain structure. For example, juggling has been shown to increase white matter tissue composed of nerve fiber structures in the brain associated with visuomotor performance. Similarly, musicians have been shown to have increased gray matter in the parts of the brain that process auditory information. Learning a new language can also change the structure of the human brain. A large review of the literature suggested that mentally stimulating leisure activities increase brain reserve, which can instill resilience and be protective of cognitive decline in older adults, be it chess or Mm -hmm. cognitive games. Just simply choosing to learn something. Really, it seems like anything new, anything that interests you, you're going to see neurological benefits. All right. This one's going to get you. Number six, sleep properly. Sleep is an essential component of human life, yet many people do not understand the relationship between good brain health and the process of sleeping. During sleep, the brain reorganizes and recharges itself and removes toxic waste byproducts, which helps to maintain normal brain functioning. Sleep is very important for transforming experiences into our long-term memory, maintaining cognitive and emotional function, and reducing mental fatigue. Studies of sleep deprivation have demonstrated effects, uh, deficits, have demonstrated deficits in memory and attention, as well as changes in the reward system, which often disrupts emotional functioning. Sleep also exerts a strong regulatory influence on the immune system. If you have the optimal quantity and quality of sleep, you will find that you have more energy, better well-being, and are able to develop your creativity and thinking. Sleep. That's a big one. <laughs> Who would have known? And I, I listen, I know that none of these were like groundbreaking, but for some reason, seeing them all together in a list of six, I thought... Yeah, not only is that a good reminder, but those are like achievable. Like you, yes. you don't have to have access to all sorts of, you know, resources to learn something new or to make sleep a priority or to, you know, to even 
make some body weight exercises a part of your your, rather, your regular rhythm. Either way, I found that challenging and convicting and also a little inspiring here at the beginning of 2021, especially in light of everything else that's going on. But as we've mentioned a couple of times throughout the show today, today is our two-year birthday. Is it two-year anniversary or birthday? Which, what should we call it? Probably an anniversary. Birthday sounds more celebratory, though, birthday but it's probably is- an anniversary. <laughs> Birthiversary is what we'll call it. The two year <laughs> birthiversary of the common good. And so Brian uh, and I are just going to look back in the last two years and reflect a little bit to wrap up the show here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the common good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and we've mentioned it throughout the entire show. I think I'm going to stick with this word. It is our second Birth anniversary. This is uh, yes. that is pretty wild, actually, to think that it's been two years since we started the show. Remember how remember how terrified we were that first show? I vividly remember. I wore a nice <laughs> button down shirt and khakis for one, and uh, I do remember it because uh, I remember when that when it was like four o'clock. Like here we go, and we looked at each other like I, I don't know, man. <laughs> we uh-huh. just went for it. And it's really been a really fun two years. I mean, who could have imagined COVID being almost half of it? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but but it's really been fun. It's really been a good time. And I think after that first show, uh, we probably would have not bet a lot of money that we would have made it two years. But here we are. <laughs> well, the photo showed up in my timeline, too. So I saw you my with team. your not only your button up shirt, but your tucked in button up shirt. And I thought oh. that's the last day that ever happened. That is yep. that. Is, and it was funny, too, because. You know, we we were standing because we were too nervous to sit, I think. And I, <laughs> yes. I, I printed out all these prompts in like 38 <laughs> size font. So like to remind myself yes. how to get in and out of a segment. And I thought it would be fun for us to reminisce a little bit today, starting with our very first show where you <laughs> I love you, <laughs> you kicked it off and then you tossed it to me. So it's like my very first time speaking on AM 1160, the common good. And I totally porky pigged it. Take a listen. <laughs> Well, good afternoon. My name is Brian Fromm, along here with Ian Simpkins, and welcome to the first rendition of The Common Good. Ian, we're here, man. We made it. Can't be, can't be, couldn't be more excited. Yeah, not my, not my proudest moment by far. I remember as soon as I opened my mouth, I was like, oh no, it's happening. And I just sort of stumbled. It was, oh, I was sweating and and nervous. It was awful. And I don't think, uh, was it right after that that I then threw to the very first break of the show by calling it the common ground? <laughs> you did. You sure did. And Brian, that's a great segue because I want to use the word ground, but really in a different tense. Grind. We did a segment. I guess we haven't done it in a while called uh, Grind My Gears. I think I found like a really terrible rap song to serve as sort of our, <laughs> our intro to it. But I forget where this was. I want to play a couple minutes of Brian Fromm's <laughs> rant about little tiny dogs being pampered. This is Grinds My Gears, Brian Fromm. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome back to the Common Good. My name is DJ. Nope. The Rev. Nope. That's- <laughs> Can I start over? My name is DJ. Sermon Fresh. Nah, I no. should have thought of this. These are all no, real bad. bad. DJ Presbyter. Nope. None of those. None of those really flow nope. for your. What would your DJ name be? I. I would never have. You have to guess oh. now. Just it'll grind my gears if you don't guess. Oh really? See now you've got your first topic. See there it is. Uh, DJ. Oh, I see my name Brian Fromm. I could be DJ Beefro. 
<laughs> That's pretty good. I'm actually, I'm actually kind of angry at how good that is. DJ Beefro in the house. Can I introduce you as DJ Beefro? Sure. Every time we do Not this particular. Oh, just for grind my gears. <laughs> just I'm for in. grind my gears. I'm okay. In. So I mentioned earlier you already have one. I think you actually talked about it yesterday. You're like, oh, I have, I have one for the future. So okay. this is your first. Here's what grinds my gears. Yeah, people who treat their dogs like kids. <laughs> that, that that gets me. And oh, no. so, do I need to distance myself from you for this? I've said many times on here. I have a dog that I adore. I love my dog, but I still know it's a dog. She's a dog. Okay. But this, we treat her like a member of the family. I, I love this dog. But the other day, my daughter and I, we were walking <laughs> oh, no. down, uh, down, downtown Downers Grove, uh, at their Friday night we have in town, we have, uh, you know, like where they, a car show. So get an ice cream, walk in, having dinner, whatever else. And we had a couple different people, not one person, a couple different people uh, that we passed by pushing their little dogs in strollers. Man, I, I wanted to. I, yeah, that bothered me. <laughs> what did you actually do? <laughs> I walked around them and then my daughter and I made fun of them. But that's a whole nother deal. <laughs> OK, so that's that one always just brings a, a smile to my heart. And uh, <laughs> I stand by it. Yeah, <laughs> as, as well, you should. That should that should grind your gears. Okay, so one one last one here. Um, this is Back to the Future Day, and our producer John was freaking out on Brian a little bit for a, uh, a particular reason. Take a listen. What do you mean you didn't recognize that music? I didn't recognize that music. Are you a Back to the Future fan? I mean, I've seen the movies, but I'm oh, not. Oh like, no, yeah, oh, I wouldn't no. call myself. I like the movie, so I'm a fan of the movie, but I think when you say fan, you mean something bigger than that, and so the answer to that is no. Okay, well, that was Back to the Future, and today is Back to the Future so you Day. you would have recognized that as Back to the Future music. Yes, and I think even our uh, our 14-year-old producer, John, would have... <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's so mad. He's so mad right now. He's not 14. 16. He's 20. Yeah. Okay, I get it. It's not even like as popular as the Star Wars theme, but even people who haven't even oh, seen Star angry. Wars know <laughs> the Star Wars theme. I know the, the Star Wars theme. I know. I so, oh, look what you did to him. I'm so sorry that Brian Fromm's back is to John. I wish you could have seen him just having a meltdown in the booth. He was he was like full Larry David just then. Full curb enthusiasm. I'm going to go. I think most people would say that the Star Wars theme is a lot more well-known than yeah, the Back to the Future that. theme. He said that. That's exactly what he said. I yeah. led with that. <laughs> okay, so I wouldn't necessarily say those were our three proudest moments of the last Right. Two years. In but fact, funny. to be oh, yep. to be totally honest, we've had some some really really remarkable guests. We've been able to yeah. have conversations that have truthfully like shaped me over the last two years. Mm-hmm. I've been I've been challenged mm-hmm. by new ideas and new perspectives and new insights. And uh, yeah, not to get too sappy, man. It's been it's been a really really fun enjoyable ride. Like it's been it blows my mind that it's been two years, but I I've loved almost every minute of it. Absolutely. I think of even like today we had David Coises on and, you know, yeah. the highlights for me have been like Rick Warren and these guys. But then but then having some of these people that we've been able to get to know by having them on three times, four times that we right. would never have gotten to know these guys before has been a real highlight. And, you know, man, again, not to be too sappy, but uh, people are amazed when I tell them that you and I had basically never met each other before right. we started doing a show together. Uh, and, and now I joking, I said this to somebody today. I said, I think I text with Ian more than I text with my wife (laughs) during a normal week (laughs) because you and I are constantly texting about the show. Hey, did you see this? Did you see that? And it's been great. It's been a really fun two years. And 
uh, nothing I don't think either of us ever expected to be doing. Uh, and yeah. it's just been really fun. So, hey, happy birthday anniversary, birth anniversary to us today. Two years and still kicking. Yeah, I'd also say props, too, to the leadership of the station because they really took a risk on us with a, a yeah. format that was different and unique and two guys who had really never done radio before. I think all all credit to them and sort of seeing maybe the beginnings of something that possibly had mm-hmm. potential, and uh, we're really grateful for that. And I'll end with this. We're really grateful for all of you. We know that we wouldn't right. really have a show if it wasn't for people not only listening but engaging and sharing and sending us messages and notes, we are really, really grateful for all of you. We're so grateful for our producer, John, and all the work that he does behind the scenes. And, uh, yeah, it's been a wild, wild two years, and we're really, really grateful for all of you. Mm-hmm. And with that, I guess I'll land this plane. I'll dock this boat, as <laughs> we used to say. But we'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.